On a brisk day in November 1998, a doughy, balding computer salesman from Brooklyn was supposed to report to prison to begin a 17-year sentence. He rented a Ford Taurus and drove to Queens to turn in his ankle monitor. Then he took $600 out of an ATM, headed to JFK Airport, and vanished. His name was John Rufo. The crime he committed was outlandish. They said he was one of the biggest con men of the century. His life was a hall of mirrors. He says, I got a picture of Rufo with the New York SWAT team and the assistant director of the FBI. His $353 million fraud left a trail of trauma in its wake. No one thought he would run. The next thing I know, I get a phone call, where's Rufo? And now, more than two decades later, the mystery has yet to be solved. Where and who is John Rufo? I'm Sunny Hostin with ABC News. Over the past year, a team from the ABC News Investigative Unit joined the search for John Rufo, following the U.S. Marshals as they uncovered surprising new leads in a global manhunt. So I get a call in the middle of the night, and she's like, I know where John is. From behind home plate at Dodger Stadium. So we're able to track in that exact seat location. To the Adriatic coast. Keep in mind, $13 million gets you a long way. The U.S. Marshals are trying to solve one of the most stubborn fugitive cases in American history. Now, they may be closer than ever. From ABC News, this is Have You Seen This Man? Matthew Mosk, a senior investigative reporter at ABC, first started looking into this story last year. I'm outside the Powell Federal Courthouse in downtown Richmond. It's an old, imposing building made of Italian stone with a distinctive red tile roof. The courthouse sits in the shadow of the gleaming Virginia State Capitol. It was here in 1998 that a rumpled New Yorker just five foot four, pleaded guilty to a raft of federal charges. And it was here where a uniformed U.S. Marshal stood ready to put him in handcuffs. So what's your name? Kevin. Trevelyan. Okay. So how do you fit into all this, Kevin? You start, you're at the very beginning? I am the beginning of it all. <laughs> I am the beginning of it all. And then I started... Trevelyan is retired now, but he still retains a disarming charm. He's honed it over years of calmly leading stunned defendants off to prison. He remembers seeing John Rufo trembling in his seat, waiting for a judge to hand down his sentence. He, he, he was shaking at that point because I, he didn't think at that day he was going to go to jail. And at that point... Trevelyan took me inside to see where it all took place. So in the courtroom that day, we had the government and all of their case agents sitting to the right. To the left was uh, Defendant John Rufo. That day, a uh, judge was on the bench, stenographers were in, and the criminal clerk. Uh, the courtroom was rather filled with people, a lot of media coverage also. 
At one table sat a team of top federal prosecutors. Over at the defense table was a brash young lawyer on the rise, Jeffrey Lichtman. Lichtman would later represent the infamous mob boss John Gotti Jr. and would one day represent the murderous drug lord known as El Chapo. But on this day, his client was a meek computer salesman. He was unmemorable. He wore chunky rimmed glasses, and some compared him to the sitcom sidekick George Costanza. Who are you, George Costanza? I'm the opposite of every guy you've ever met. John Rufo pleaded guilty for his part in what was then one of the biggest bank fraud cases in history, an elaborate scheme in which he and a partner stole $350 million. He was 44 at the time, and the crime seemed well beyond the imagination of someone who looked so ordinary. But then again, no one really knew Rufo. This bank scam would not be the last time he was underestimated. His lawyer, Jeffrey Lichtman, and I spoke over Zoom about that day. You do this long enough, your brain starts to get a little soft on details that don't matter. But on the stuff that was amazing, I, I can remember this case like it was yesterday, which is what was funny when I read your email and you said, well, you know, whatever you can remember. It's like, dude, I remember the color tie I was wearing on the day <laughs> sentencing. He remembers what Rufo looked like, shrinking in his seat as he awaited his sentence. He was a computer nerd. He was the guy that comes to your office when your computer breaks. I mean, he had a mustache. He was heavy set. He was short. He was balding. Um, but usually with these computer nerds that come to your office, if you spend a few minutes with them and actually speak to them, you find that they're actually really smart and really interesting and funny. And um, John was not funny or interesting that day. <laughs> I can tell you that. I liked him. You know, he was good natured and there was something roguish about him despite his nerd uh, visage because look what he had done. And it was like this really ballsy. It was something you'd never expect from a guy that looked like that. And I was that morning, Lickman and his client had flown down to Richmond from New York for the sentencing hearing. These should have been Rufo's final hours of freedom because whatever sense he got, it was customary for the defendant to be remanded to custody right then and there. But that's not what happened. So now the good stuff. Um, we go down to Virginia. Now this, I, this part I remember well. I made what I considered to be a pretty impassioned plea, basically saying you're putting, the government's asking for a ridiculous amount of time his client was facing a stiff sentence, up to 25 years, for what was a massive bank fraud. I said, you know, what are you going to give the rapists? What are you going to give the killer? So we had a very tough judge who I liked, instantly liked. And it was somewhat of a My Cousin Vinny moment. My Cousin Vinny, you know, the fish-out-of-water comedy with a hard-bitten New Yorker trying to argue before a genteel Southern judge. The two youths. Uh, uh, to what? Uh, what was that word? Uh, what word? To what? What? I had gone to school in the South for seven years, but, you know, certain people that go to school in the South for seven years, the South just does not stick to them. It never stuck to me. This judge was rough. The sentence imposed? 17 years for John Rufo. This is a guy who was not very healthy, was not in great shape, 
and was not really cut out for prison. And they're pulling him out of the courtroom and his head is down. He looks like a, like a sick animal. Kevin Trevilian was the marshal on duty that day. His job? To put handcuffs on Rufo and take him into custody. Put him in uh, handcuffs and I it was walking him out of the courtroom. And all of a sudden I heard in Judge Williams' very distinct voice, hold on, Marshal Kevin. So I stopped and I turned around and his attorney started arguing, arguing, arguing. And uh, it was, and he said, well, take the handcuffs off of him. So I took the handcuffs off of him. Lichtman beseeched the judge to allow his client to stay out on bail. Rufo had already been out on $10 million bail for over a year. His family back in New York had put up all of their homes as collateral. Trevilian remembers the judge pondering this and then turning to Rufo. And then judge agreed and said, as long as you promise to report. And John Rufo said, yes, indeed, 100%, I will be there. The judge, like so many others had before him, decided to trust John Rufo. And with the family homes as collateral, he agreed to let him remain free until the day came for Rufo to report to prison. As for Lichtman, he still remembers leaving court with Rufo. They had a flight to catch from Richmond back to New York. John and I are on our way to the airport. And I remember turning to John in the car. This is the kind of things that a 33-year-old lawyer, sometimes you keep things to yourself and you don't say what's in your, in your brain. I said, boy, I'm sure glad I got you out because I had no way, idea how to get back to the airport. <laughs> and we both laughed. One person still stunned by the court's decision is the woman who had been Rufo's wife for 19 years, Linda. Even the marshals told me that it's almost unheard of that a person would be sentenced to that lengthy sentence and be allowed to turn themselves in alone, knowing what a high risk he was, a flight risk. I recently drove to Linda's home on Staten Island. Over the past year, we've had a series of conversations about Rufo's case. She was at the door with her daughter, Natalie, and their dog, Martha, when I pulled Hi, in. Who's this guy? She's very friendly. Martha. Linda's a small woman with dark hair, and as you'll hear, she still carries the accent from the old neighborhood in the outer boroughs of New York. Even though she's remarried and has a teenage daughter, she still gets emotional talking about her first husband. I didn't want to go on. I didn't want to face everything that was going to happen. No one has followed Rufo's case more closely. Linda met Rufo as a teenager. He had a job where her father had worked at an Italian fruit stand in Brooklyn called Paul's with sawdust on the floor and no air conditioning. He took Linda to her high school prom and they fell in love. I couldn't commit to anyone else once I met John. Even though I would break up with him, I would end up back with him. I, I couldn't get him out of my system. After they married, Linda helped encourage Rufo as he built his small computer business in Manhattan. It started as cemetery computer systems. Woodlawn Cemetery had hired them to turn mountains of paper files into electronic records. Then other companies followed, and they changed their name to CCS. As the American economy of the 1980s roared, Rufo looked like someone finding real success. Some employees used to say, if a ship's going down, I want to be with John because I know 
he'll save the day. He had a charisma that he knew everything. He was very smart. You felt safe with him. What was People his, respected him. What was behind the charisma? Was he funny? Was he, did he command the room? I mean, when you look at the pictures of him, he seems very ordinary. Right. Not in person. Uh, he, was, he was small. But when he spoke, people listened. He just had that way. Linda joined the company as it grew. She noticed curiosities, layers of deception that she started to sense as her husband spent long hours isolated in his private office with the door closed. And as the company became more successful, Linda says he started to change. The last 10 years, he was like a stranger. He was not there. No, he, he didn't really look me in the eyes. And it was just work, work, work. And there was, it sounds like, a lot going on beneath the surface that he was holding oh, yeah. close to the vest. During this time, Rufa was joined by a partner, a tall, splashy tobacco executive named Ed Reiners. Reiners drove a red Jag and used a flashy new invention, a car phone. We'll talk more about him later in the story, but he was the first one in this scheme to be arrested. Rufo, on the other hand, spent the next year under the FBI's microscope. Linda said it was agonizing. Suspicions enveloped her husband and everyone around him. Then the day she was dreading arrived. Carol, the receptionist, called me because I sat completely on the other side of the office. And she said, Linda, Linda, they're arresting. The FBI is here and they're arresting John. And, and they were cuffing him. I started screaming, what, what, you're making a mistake. What, what's going on? And John was as cold as ice. Rufo did not say a word. Nothing. Just smirked. Later, he was released on bail and sent home with an ankle bracelet. By that point, Linda had made a difficult, and it would later become clear, costly decision. She would stand by her husband. I was, like, demanded to know the truth from John. I mean, literally, I just kind of beat him up. We were on the street in the city, and I just, I said to him, did you know about this? And look me in my eyes and tell me. And he was crying. And he said, I, I knew nothing about it. And I said, okay. And I hope that I don't find out anything different at the trial. Tell mm -hmm. me everything, no matter how bad it is. I want to know now. And I'll stand by you. So, you know, he assured me that he knew nothing. Those repeated assurances had convinced Linda the stakes were higher than ever. She had offered up not just her own home, but those of their elderly parents and aunts and uncles as collateral when Rufo asked to be released on $10 million bail. One home in Rigo Park, Queens, two others nearby, across from the famous Aqueduct Horse Track, and three more on the eastern edge of Brooklyn, six houses in all. He, he told his mother, you know, I need money, Ma. To, and she gave him seventy or $80,000 because she thought it was to pay the legal fees. 
She even bought him two suits so he could go to trial hmm. in a new suit. Linda didn't even consider the possibility that Rufo would try and run. Later, looking back on it, she wonders if he was trying to tell her. So I think he was trying to feel me out because he also mentioned once within that year, how about I just go away and then, you know, just forget all this. And I said, what about me? And he said, well, I'd, I'd send for you. And I'd said, but then we'd be like guilty and you're not guilty. And it's like living on the lamb. What about our parents? I think he was trying to feel me out and see where my allegiance was. Right. And then he probably realized, forget it. She'll never. She's not up for this. Did part of you at some period of time regret that you reacted the way you did? Did you did you wish that he had sent for you? I wished I kind of played along because I never would have left my my mom and his mother. I would never live that kind of lifestyle, but at least I was like, gee, I should maybe have said that I was going along with it to see what he would say or do. Rufo knew the day was coming, and on November 9th, 1998, court officials advised him it was time. He was ordered to report to the Federal Correctional Institute in Fairton, New Jersey. But that evening, phones started ringing. First, at the U.S. Marshal's office, where Lisa Berger, the deputy on duty that night, picked up the line. The uh, Bureau of Prisons had called that morning to say that he had not self-surrendered like he was supposed to. Then, Rufo's lawyer. The next thing I know, I get a phone call, where's Rufo? And I'm like, huh? He's like, Rufo didn't surrender. Then... As Linda described it to me back in 2019 in a crowded restaurant, the phone rang at the Rufo house. The marshals called, and they're like, where is John Rufo screaming on the phone at me? That morning would be the last time she'd see him. She says she had no idea he was supposed to report to prison. For her, it was just a typical day. I made his lunch. I had a chiropractor appointment in the city that I had to go to before work. So he insisted on driving me to the subway instead of taking the bus. I said, uh, don't drive me, I'll get myself there. No, 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 he insisted. Rufo told Linda his car was in the shop and in a rented Ford Taurus, he drove to the probation office to have his ankle monitor removed. Then at 12.30 p.m., he was seen on surveillance footage entering a bank in Queens, wearing a tan trench coat. He steps to the ATM, and you can see a placid smile cross his face. He withdraws $600, turns, and walks out. That's the last known image of John Rufo, a mundane moment for a desperate man. Ten days later, authorities found the Taurus, in long-term parking lot B, row 933, at JFK Airport. Jack Mullaney, the FBI agent who arrested Rufo, told me he initially jumped in to assist the U.S. Marshals in trying to track him down, 
after he failed to report to prison in Fairton, New Jersey. Mullaney still feels the sting from when he first interviewed the probation officer who had collected that ankle monitor, a practice the feds have since discontinued. I said to, I said to the guy, I said, he came, he came to your office in a car. Was anybody with him? He said, no. And he was going to Fairton after you took off the bracelet. Yeah. I said, Do, did you expect him to park in long-term parking? He was going away for 18 years, you son of a bitch. How do you let this guy go? How do you take the bracelet off of this guy? It's the only way we had to trace him. Back at Rufo's house, Linda found a note on the kitchen table. The message was cryptic. We'll talk more about what it said in the next episode. But Rufo made one thing clear. One way or another, he intended to disappear. Writing at one point, Please help yourself by knowing I beat them. Love always, John. Two weeks later, the prosecutors who had convicted Rufo filed a motion to seize the houses where Linda, her mother, and her mother-in-law were living. Linda went to court to plead for mercy. She told the judge her mother-in-law was sick, her father-in-law had won the Bronze Star in World War II, and her own mother had dementia. The judge showed no mercy. He said the houses were the only leverage the government had to coerce Rufo to come back. Rufo's niece, Jennifer Trout, was 13 the day she watched her entire family pack their every belonging. So I remember that feeling of like watching them like scramble almost to like, what do I need? What, what, what can I leave here? Crying. I'm watching, I'm watching my grandparents cry. So that was very traumatic. Everyone had a downsize. Everyone had a, you know, had that sense of like, okay, where do I go now? And thanks. Linda in shock moved in with neighbors. Eventually Linda moved in with her mother-in-law. I asked her what Rufo's mother said to her. There they were, together in a tiny apartment. Nothing. She never said a word. She never complained. Another defense lawyer who worked with Rufo at the time was Judd Burstein. He told me he never saw it coming. Do you think you'll ever hear from him again? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say it like that? I try not to be a judgmental person, but I think that what he did to his wife and mother was so terrible um, that I don't think he's worth a minute of my time. I think that there are certain things you can do that are unforgivable. That was unforgivable. What the U.S. Marshals would soon learn is that John Rufo did not just wake up on November 9th and decide to make a run for it. He spent years crafting false identities. He had mail drops in offices rented under fake names. And as our team would discover, he had honed the tradecraft of espionage. We're going to learn more about the crime that gave John Rufo access to millions. But first, we'll meet the U.S. Marshals in charge of the manhunt and get a look inside the search that's underway right now for John Rufo, after the break.
Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. It's a quiet spring morning in suburban Virginia, and I'm in the back seat of a nondescript minivan with tinted windows. Deputy Marshals Chris Luer and Danielle Shimchik are on a stakeout. Their mission? Find John Rufo. You love this van, don't you? Oh, I love it. I don't want to get rid of this thing. Chris's lap, pretty much. Yeah. Because it's hard. I mean, I have a lot of gear in here, too. I mean, this is, this is a robot. What do so. you mean, this is a robot? Uh, like a little robot you can drive around and look at with a camera. You've got this, you've got this hard case. You've got a, a giant lockbox, which I assume is weapons. A uh, vest and a rifle. Okay. You've got a shield of some kind over here. Yep, so this is yep. a uh, ballistic shield. Chris and Danielle don't think they'll need that kind of firepower, but they're always ready. So if this turned out to be... Rufo, you'd wait for other people, though. To... Absolutely. Oh yeah. Yeah, we would not do this alone. But if you had, if you had to, act if we had quickly, to, you've got what you need. I'd hope we can outrun him. <laughs> but <laughs> he anything look, is possible. He doesn't look that fast. He doesn't, but you'd be surprised sometimes. But we do have, um, we have a task force when up people here. People are running for their freedom. Right. At any one time, there are hundreds of fugitives wanted by law enforcement. The U.S. Marshals are in charge of finding them. Then there's a small group of special cases, the fugitives who've been so hard to find, they need extra attention. These cases get priority status. They get more resources, bigger rewards. 
like John Rufo's case. Chris and Danielle have been in pursuit of Rufo for almost three years now. Much of the work is painstaking, reconstructing financial records, analyzing personal habits and traits, and mapping his contacts. But the two deputies also follow up on every possible sighting, no matter how flimsy the tip may seem. Today, they're looking into a tip that came into headquarters in Arlington, Virginia. So what is the origin of this guy we're going to take a look at today? What's, where did he come from? So he came from one of the inspectors up in headquarters, um, sent us this tip, and I will read you what the tip says. I observed a guy who looks very similar to Rufo working at a store, um, and he gave us the address. Um, he was in the store a couple times. And what he found interesting was uh, the guy fit the physical descriptions of Rupo. Mm -hmm. Guy had a heavy New York accent and the same height and weight as Rupo. So you guys, you can't just like ignore that. Like no, yeah, and we're not gonna ignore any tip that comes through. Yeah. And wh what was interesting about it was it came from you know a, an inspector, so somebody who somebody who's like not a lay person, right? Who's, who would maybe just say oh well it kind of wouldn't like send it. us a bogus tip like a tip we got last week was oh hey we see rufo you know he's in kansas the guy's six foot something right it's likely not rufo <laughs> you can't change your height so, that much a lot of these we can rule out pretty quickly just by digging like the one we got last week where he was in kansas danielle's probably spent a couple hours on the computer and was able to find a driver's license photo of the individual and we did not need to investigate that one any further yeah Chris and Danielle had arrived an hour earlier to stake out the location. It's a small store in a suburban strip mall selling mattresses, recliners, and easy chairs. Um, and actually, as I was kind of pulling into the parking lot um, at about 9.15, um, it was pretty, pretty easy to identify the individual, which this tip was about. Um, Did he look like Rufo to you? He, he does. He's, yeah, the he same, looks... he's the same height. And we have... You know our capabilities have advanced a lot. So when we're out in the, you know, when we're out in the field, out on the street, we can obtain driver's license photos on our phones, depending on the state. So um, I was able to identify the individual, saw where he parked, and based off vehicle information, um, was able to identify him. And so we do. So we we know the individual is from New York. He is five foot three. Rufo's five foot four. He has a very Italian name. Um, so when you hold photos side by side, which is always interesting to do. Here. So that's not a bad, that's a pretty decent lead. Yeah. So it's yeah. not, you know, the one in Kansas we looked at it quickly. We know. I quietly enter the store behind them. The salesman's smile melts away as they explain they're not looking for furniture. He does look like Rufo. Politely as possible, they ask the man if they can scan his fingerprints. Both Chris and Danielle are in their early 30s and sinking their teeth into a top 15 most wanted case for the first time. Chris is tall and lanky. He's a former Marine from Minnesota who told me he thinks of the Marshal Service as the Marine Corps of law enforcement. It's hands-on work with what he called a do-more-with-less mentality. Danielle is upbeat and social, a young mother from New Jersey, she got hired by the Marshals right out of college at age 21 
and says she basically grew up in the service. Now, when Danielle walks around the federal courthouse, everyone knows her, from the judges to the janitors. When I first started following this case, the two deputies brought me into their offices in Richmond to see the nerve center of the investigation. They call it the Rufo Room. All right, tell us what this is. This is our Rufo Room, is the best way to put it. Um, This is all our evidence that we've had in the case, memo books, um, any notes that were taken. Okay. Messages. The two deputies are the newest links in a chain of marshals that have overseen this manhunt that is now two decades old. Okay. And so did you have to go basically from scratch, go through all of this stuff or not? And we're still working on going through every piece of paper. Yeah. Um, We started with going through all of our investigative reports from previous investigators. Um, So we started with that to try to organize everything. Um, And now we're going through, our mission is to go through every single one of these boxes. It's a small office, but it's packed floor to ceiling with those boxes. And these are, when you say this is the, this is like all the marshals work from day one. It's marshals and it's FBI. Um, So it's, it's records from the um, company that Rufo has, CCS. Um, It's interviews, it's associates. Yeah. Financial reports. We can start here. We have some old pictures of Rufo. It's always fun to look at. Um, so we've got his wife provided us a lot of these photos, these Polaroids wow. of him. Uh, here's his old booking photos. Mm-hmm. We've got his passport. Some boxes hold the flight manifests from planes leaving JFK Airport on the day of his escape. Meaning somewhere in all those printouts could be the new name Rufo began using from that moment forward, if he got on a plane at all. You know, with his vehicle being found in JFK, and, you know, we can get into that, whether, you know, maybe he set that up, um, or maybe he was gone, maybe he never flew out of JFK, who knows, but... Assuming the JFK thing was real, and he got on a plane, to, and he could, in a matter of hours, he could have been anywhere in the world, basically. He had 13 to $21 million unaccounted for. So that's a lot of money. So he had the resources... Following the money has been their mantra. At this moment, both Chris and Danielle believe the financial files that fill the boxes around us probably contain the most important answers about Rufo's escape. His swindle brought in hundreds of millions of dollars. And after his arrest, teams of auditors plowed through those records. They were able to find and recover much of the money, but not all of it. What's difficult is Chris and I trying to figure it out. We're not CPAs. We're not financial folks. Um, so for us to understand all of that has been difficult at times. And I think a part of our focus now is to get our folks on board with really identifying what his MO was during the course of his the conspiracy. To go back and now say, okay, well, these were his traits that he had, and this is how he was dispersing his money. Because if we can figure that out, we might be able to identify or predict what he's going to do in the future. Over the course of the next year, we would see the deputies return again and again to a cardinal rule of cold case investigations. The answer is always in the files. Now, at the same time, on any given day, 
someone might spot Rufo and call in a tip to the marshals, which is what brought us to that suburban Virginia strip mall last year. The man is surprised at first, but then he agrees to let Danielle scan his fingerprints. So we're doing your job. I got no problem, man. Okay, cool. So we're working. You're keeping me and my family safe. He places his fingers on a digital scanner, a little bit bigger than a pack of cigarettes, and I ask him if he thinks he looks like the fugitive. So you looked at the picture. Yeah. What do you you think? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. My face is a little bit different shape, but you can see his face looks a little more oblong there. The glasses make him look rounder. Yeah. That's me too. And he's from Brooklyn, right? He's from Brooklyn too. Get out of here. How old is the guy? Two years older than you. Really? Italian. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. You ever had your prints taken like this? Not electronically. Well, you know, you see it on NCIS all the time. They got a dead body, and what do they do? Right there, they identify him. As he's waiting for the results, it starts to sink in what's taking place. This is, this is, this is mind-blowing. You're right. It's mind-blowing. It's good dinner conversation. And then the fingerprint reader beeps like a kitchen timer. So these are the results. So the results came back. And? You are not the target. Okay. <laughs> the way she did it, it's like, okay. With that tip scratched off their list, Chris and Danielle returned to the Rufo room. They began wading deeper and deeper into records from one of the biggest swindles in U.S. history. You know, I, I'm thinking to myself, how the hell did they get away with this? John Rufo had a dazzling plan to convince the country's largest banks to hand over hundreds of millions of dollars, and he was able to sell it. That trust, that believability, that was the foundation of this entire scam. And they played it master, they were masters at it. Next time, on Have You Seen This Man? If you have any information that can help the U.S. Marshals find this man, call 1-877-WANTED-2. That's 1-877-926-8332. Or send a tip from your phone through the U.S. Marshall app called USMS Tips. That's USMS Tips. And if you haven't already, follow this podcast to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. Let us know what you think with a rating and review. Have You Seen This Man is a production of ABC Audio and the ABC News Investigative Unit. Written and reported by senior investigative producer Matthew Moss. Field production by Alex Hosenball. Additional reporting by Kate Holland. Produced by Susie Liu and Kate Holland. Mixing and mastering by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Aaron Ferrer, Louis Millman, Leighton Schneider, Aaron Katursky, Brenda Salinas Baker, Josh Cohen, Chris Vlasto, and Stacia Deshishku. Cindy Galley, Matthew Mosk, and Liz Alessi are executive producers. I'm Sunny Hostin. in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. 
1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 